Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Outside the usual digs, I'm going to be speaking at the JCCF George Jonas Freedom Award dinner this evening in Burnaby. So now I have to contend on a live show with uh, hotel room lighting, which is always the worst lighting imaginable. Although worse lighting tends to make me look better, I, I think, because when you like see me really bright, uh, you just get terrified and listen to the podcast. So nevertheless, it is great to have you tuned into the program here live on this Wednesday, November 22nd, a bit of a busy week in Canadian politics with the government's fall economic statement coming yesterday. And I think any Canadian who's been paying attention to the fiscal situation of the country is not going to be surprised by really what we've got here, which is more spending, more debt, no tax relief, no plan for inflation. But uh, this is how our finance minister and deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, characterizes it. Foundation of our fall economic statement is our responsible fiscal plan. In the face of global inflation, our government has reduced the deficit faster than any other country in the G7. And yeah. And with inflation down from 8.1% last year to just 3.1% wow, today. care not to feed inflation by carefully targeting new investments towards the priorities of Canadians today and towards the future growth that makes our finances sustainable. I am not a finance minister, so maybe I'm just a, a lowly layman that can't quite do the math on this. But uh, by my calculation, by which I mean reading the document, it looks like the deficit is going up from 35 billion to 40 billion dollars debt is rising and interest charges on that debt are rising so i'm not sure how we are patting ourselves on the back for this grand deficit reduction plan maybe my next guest can help me make some sense of this he is the conservative finance critic jazraj singh hallan uh jazraj good to talk to you thanks for coming on today Hey, Andrew, thanks for having me on. And you're looking beaming, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Were you one of the ones laughing when she was talking about the so-called responsible fiscal plan? I think that was what uh, all of Canada was doing when she said that they were fiscally responsible. Uh, explain to me, I mean, just before getting into the meat of this here, she's saying there's a deficit reduction taking place, and she says the government is to be padded, uh, commended for that. That's not what the numbers actually show, though. Well, let's be clear. This is another false hope update that she put forward. Last year, she said she was going to balance a budget. That, that was her promise in last year's false hope update. Then she turned around and did a, a massive flip-flop and poured $60 billion of new fuel on the inflationary fire that she started. This year, we see much of the same thing. So if a responsible government to them is spending, is putting more debt on Canadians than every single government before them combined, that's between 1867 and 25, 2015. They spent more, more on Canadians, had to put more debt on Canadians in that time, in eight years, than all of those prime ministers before them combined. And then caused 40-year highs in inflation. 
and the most rapid interest rate hikes not seen in Canadian history. If that's fiscally responsible to them, I would hate to see what irresponsibility and recklessness looks like. The Liberals inherited back in 2015 a a fairly good economic situation, and at the time they used that as justification to spend large amounts of money. Justin Trudeau's argument was, well, we can afford it. And then when the economy took a a turn downward, it was, well, now we need to spend because we have to, uh, to which I would say, well, hang on, when's the situation when we don't spend aggressively if we spend in good times and spend in bad times? But here we have the consequences of this. We've gone through a, a crisis when most countries around the world uh, had to spend outside their means, or, or generally did, as far as COVID is is concerned. But it, we had no buffer, and and now we're seeing ballooning debt. And as you well know, the larger your debt gets, the more you have to spend to service that debt, which is a, a basically a dollar that is being wasted. It's a dollar that's not going towards anything that Canadians need. And we're seeing this occupy a larger and larger share of the federal finances, aren't we? Absolutely. Now, you have to take everything uh, Justin Trudeau says with a grain of salt, because this is the guy that said that budgets balance themselves. And obviously, we know that that's not true. This guy fueled the inflationary crisis that led to these rapid interest rate hikes. And he's made things worse, where he's been promising to quadruple his carbon tax scam. That's This is the legacy of this guy, which has led 2 million people into a food bank in a single month in this country where a third of them are children and one in five Canadians today are skipping meals because of these failed economic policies of this liberal NDP government. They need to reverse course and do the exact opposite of what they're doing today. The governor of the Bank of Canada, when I questioned him in our committee, said the same thing. He said the government's fiscal policy and his monetary policy of raising interest rate hikes to tame inflation are working in opposite directions. It's because the government continues to fuel inflation with the more they spend. And this fall economic update of theirs shows that they're going to continue to run deficits and large deficits at that. They're adding 20 billion new inflationary deficits to that. And what is that going to do? It's going to it's going to make the government the governor's job harder to bring down those interest rates. And what we need to do today is do the exact opposite. A common sense conservative government under Pierre Polyev would balance the budget to bring down inflation, to bring down those interest rates, because today, after eight years of Justin Trudeau, Canada is most at risk in the G7 for a mortgage default crisis. So we need to help to save people's homes. Number two, we need to axe the tax, get rid of this carbon tax altogether. That's what a common sense conservative uh, government would do to bring down the cost of gas, groceries and home heating. And we need to get more homes built in this country. And our common sense conservative leader put forward a bill inside of Parliament literally called Build More Homes, Not More Bureaucracy Act. Now, when you mentioned balancing the budget, I I know the Conservatives previously campaigned, I think it was the 2019 election, on a law that would effectively force the government to balance the budget. Now, you've seen the numbers now, you've seen the books, you've seen the size of the deficit. How many years do you think it would take to bring the budget to balance? Because I'm not sure without some very aggressive cuts that, you know, even a Conservative government right now could eliminate this deficit to zero and have produced a a balanced budget this year. Although I I would love to be proven wrong if you've got an alternative there. Look, I don't know if anyone can really know what this, the the real picture looks like until we form government, because even, even the public budgeting officer, the liberals own public watchdog, the finance watchdog has said that 
whatever is being projected or whatever he's seen, it's still not the full picture because there's a lot more that they're not adding in. But I will tell you what, what the Conservatives will do to get started. Right now, this Liberal NDP government is covering its, its incompetence up by hiring $22 billion a year on Liberal-connected insider consultants. These are the kind of uh, wasteful spending that's made, that's fueled inflation and actually made Canadians' lives even worse because services has not gotten better at all. These, these are the kind of things that we would do. And like I said, here's some free advice for the Liberals. And you don't need to pay me or any consultant for this advice. If you axe a tax today, it would put a massive dent in inflation. That's what the governor of the Bank of Canada confirmed. It would take off 06 which means in today's date, it would bring us back down to the range for the, gov- for the governor of the Bank of Canada to start bringing down interest rates. That's some free advice for the government, what they could do today. And not only that, we could help people's paychecks, Canadians' paychecks be stronger because they could keep more in their pocket that way. And the cost of food, gas, and home heating, and that's wintertime now, would all come down. These are the kind of things that the government needs to be doing. But under a peer poly of government, these things will get done. I know when we're talking about a, a budget that is involving spending in the billions, it may not be the hugest amount, but we did see in the fell economic update, the Liberals want to put, I think it was $126 million more into bankrolling the media. Now, I, I take it that's not, uh, given what uh, your leader has said previously, that's not a priority for the Conservatives here? Definitely. Look, I, I will I will tell you that <clears throat> we are the common sense conservatives. Our plan is not only to find savings and our government, what we will do is bring in a dollar for dollar law because of the <clears throat> out of control liberal NDP spending. Canadians today have to have to cut in their own budgets and practice austerity. What the government should be doing the same thing today. They need to we will bring in a dollar for dollar law. Any dollar that gets spent by any department, they have to find a dollar of savings. We need to make sure that we're actually fiscally responsible. That's how we're going to start. We're going to start balancing the budget or get to a balanced budget. What we also need to look at is the other side of the equation, Andrew. We've seen after eight years of this Liberal NDP government, really bad policy, anti-energy, anti-Alberta, anti-productive policies by these guys. For instance, Bill C-69, which was rules unconstitutional, the carbon tax, Bill C-48. We need to build, build, build in this country. We have, we are a resource-rich country. We need to make sure that we're supporting these industries. And not only will we help bring powerful paychecks to our Canadian people by giving the world our clean, responsible, low-carbon intense energy to the world, we can replace dirty coal in the world. We can replace those dollars for dictators with dollars for our Canadian people. Those are the things that we would do as a a responsible, common-sense Conservative government. Conservative finance critic Jazz Raj Singh Hallen. Always good to talk to you, Jazz. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Thanks very much for that. Now, interestingly enough, the government is trying to uh, give a very rosy picture of things. And again, to give a a fiscal update that is uh, more of everything bad and uh, none or less of anything good is tough to do with a a smile. But uh, Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland has certainly tried to do that. But uh, this is like the weird talking point the Liberals have tried to put out there. Let me pull up this tweet from Krista Freeland that uh, went out yesterday. Canada is not and never has 
been broken. Now, this is a direct response, I presume, to Pierre Polyev's uh, repeated comments. I don't know how recently he said it, but he certainly said it a fair bit in the past that Canada is broken. And if you look around at people in this country who are hanging on by a thread morally, uh, socially, fiscally, uh, it is not actually a difficult case to make that Canada is broken. That doesn't mean that Canada is a failed state, but it means that Canada needs to be fixed and repaired and rebuilt. And so too do Canadian institutions and Canadian society. And when this came up, Justin Trudeau was so indignant. Oh, how how dare you say Canada is broken? And now Christian Freeland is saying the same. And uh, we saw a couple of other like no-name liberal MPs want to get some brownie points with Christian Freeland. So they were like repeating the talking point on Twitter as well. And then the, I don't know if you follow him, but the pleb reporter on Twitter, I don't even know his, I met him. I don't even know his real name. He's the pleb on Twitter. And he does a tremendous work online at like just angering all the right people. Uh, dug up this gem from Justin Trudeau just a few years ago. It's amazing what a difference eight years makes. This place belongs to all Canadians. It belongs to you. But after a decade in power, Stephen Harper thinks it belongs to him. So now, this place is broken. But today, I'm presenting a real plan to fix it. Oh! This place is broken. Surely you don't mean Canada, right? Now, in the tweet, he says Ottawa is broken, which, to be fair, I don't know Ottawa has ever been functioning, but nevertheless. Then he, like, points behind him to Parliament Hill, the seat of Canadian democracy, many would say, and says, oh, this place is broken. So maybe that's how he'd weasel his way out of that. But uh, let's also remember, Justin Trudeau is the guy who, a couple of years ago, accused Canada of perpetrating genocide. He said Canada was committing a an ongoing genocide against Indigenous women and girls, and then is so offended, just so indignantly offended, when someone dares to say that Canada might be broken. So uh, the government is trying to pretend that everything's fine. This is like ostrich parasitic syndrome, as I believe uh, Gad Saad once said, where people just stick their heads in the sand like an ostrich and uh, pretend that everything is fine. Everything is hunky-dory and rosy. Now, this has been Stephen Gilbo's approach. Now, I'll, I'll talk about this. I want to share my Christian Freeland story very uh, quickly because uh, you may have seen a couple of uh, months back, it was in January, I was trying to interview Christian Freeland in Davos. And she's not a really tall woman. It's not an insult. She's just not a tall woman. But man, can she scurry when she doesn't want to talk to you, which is what I experienced. And I didn't know if she knew me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. I mean, you know, she gets, she runs away from tons of reporters. But I saw her a couple of weeks ago. I was in Ottawa. And if you look at her travel records, Christian Freeland commutes back and forth from Toronto to Ottawa. She doesn't live in Ottawa. She goes back home most days, uh, which is great for the carbon footprint, I'm told. And I, so she was in the Ottawa airport. I was in the Ottawa airport and I was tired. It was whatever time it was of day. And I, there was a woman that looked up and saw me that I just saw out of the corner of my eye. And then she like put on sunglasses and turned around, which drew more attention to this person I hadn't noticed who ended up being Christopher Freeland. So I was glad that I had made it in the world. She recognized me on site and thought she needed to hide from me. That was uh, my, my latest Christopher Freeland encounter. I didn't have my microphone. Maybe I could have like scurried after her. But I, I generally speaking, I try not to accost people at airports because I don't want to be put on the no fly list. And uh, they, you know, of course, uh, can't really get away. So it's like, you know, shooting fish 
fish in a barrel in a way. So maybe it doesn't seem fair. But nevertheless, that was my my recent Christian Freeland encounter. Uh, let me talk about Stephen Gilbo. Talk about a guy who's putting his head in the sand here. Every time he loses a court decision, he comes up with a way where it's uh, supposedly a win. The federal court gave a resounding rebuke of the government's plastic span. I celebrated this by having a very, very large sip of water on my Monday show. And like all of the environmentalists have been like terrified at, you know, how many turtles I harmed in the making of that gag. But there is a real consequence of this. The federal government has vowed to fight this, which means industry is once again in a very precarious situation, not knowing if this plastic span will live or die as of a couple of years from now. Catherine Swift is the president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada and joins me now. It's always good to talk to her. Catherine, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Andrew. So obviously, I mean, industry in Canada was harmed by the plastic span in the first place. You have some companies where uh, literally products they made were effectively outlawed overnight or, or made so prohibitive for uh, people to get in Canada. And and now, even with the court ruling, I think on one hand, it's easy to say it's a bit of a win, but it hasn't changed the precariousness, which is that you have a government declaring war on, on plastic. And I, I think for starters, it's based on a very false premise. The the plastics that are ending up in turtles' noses in Asia and Africa are not coming from Canada and the United States, which have uh, very good uh, waste management systems. But it's companies in Canada that pay the price for these things. So what has the impact been of this ban in the first place on Canadian industry? Well, and it's it definitely companies pay, but companies also pass the increased costs on to consumers, let's face it. People at, at a time when an, an awful lot of small hospitality businesses, for example, restaurants, uh, hotels, and so on, um, uh, are already are still struggling to get out of the, their pandemic, uh, you know, depression. Uh, that this increased cost because they had to replace all this stuff. The alternatives are invariably more expensive, and they're often worse mm -hmm. <laughs> for the environment. That was that was one of the cl classic uh, elements of it that was utterly ridiculous. But uh, it, it just it's just another hit on business. The other thing, and, and anybody that knows anything about plastics knew this from the get-go. They outlawed things like straws, as you say, and apparently that one picture of the one turtle, and I love turtles, so you know I, I, I would sympathize with the turtle. But that one picture of the poor turtle uh, pre precipitated a ban on the entire, and, and the straws, the paper straws that replaced it were found to have toxic materials in them. I mean, I shouldn't be laughing. It, it's utterly ludicrous, but but it, it is almost comedic if it, if it weren't so serious. Uh, we have thousands of jobs in the plastics industry in Canada. The, the things they banned were mere virtue signaling. They're not the worst sources of plastic waste, for example. Water bottles are. And uh, I guess if we were all using paper box, wa water bottle thingies or whatever, <laughs> um, then, then you know, we, we should be worrying about that. But I think they thought they'd get too much blowback from consumers. But frankly, I think water bottles are ridiculous to, you know, to, to use at all because they're unnecessary. We have good water in this country. But anyway, the, the things that they banned were virtue signaling. They weren't realistic at all. Calling them toxic. And this, of course, is where the, where the, the, the judge's decision came in. And they had the bad luck of getting a judge that actually had some science background. She, she had a master's degree in, in biology. So she actually knew some of this stuff a lot better than seemingly uh, Minister Guivo did. So it was, it was merely a, a virtue signaling exercise that hurt business at a, at a bad time. Not that it's ever a good time, but uh, hurt consumers naturally. 
drove up prices, therefore fed inflation yet again, and did nothing for the environment, uh, but added all kinds of costs to, to our economy and on very false premises as well. And yeah, Canada isn't an offender on this front. Uh, plastics are eminently recyclable. Many, many types of plastics are infinitely recyclable. Mm -hmm. You can recycle, recycle, recycle them. And granted, we'd have to have better facilities. We already do some of that, but you know, we need to have better facilities in the future to do that. But to, to, to um, call this whole area, which is so incredibly helpful to our society, we would never have gotten through the pandemic without plastics. They're sanitary, they're sterile. There's something that in, in the medical profession, they can shape them into all kinds of interesting shapes that suit the, you know, suit the purpose. Uh, they're, they actually use less heat and energy to create than a lot of metals do. So they're actually better for the environment in that respect. Mm -hmm. uh, and and there's in, in the automobile industry, for example, having plastic parts, body, you know, auto body and so on means they're lighter and therefore more fuel efficient. So well, and, and a couple of years ago, we were just trumpeting the innovation of 3D printers. And now, yeah. you know, it's, oh, well, plastics are terrible. No one should should do anything with plastic. And you, you mentioned earlier, and I, I had alluded to this, and I, I don't have the numbers handy, but there was a massive study a few years back on plastic in the ocean. And it was literally the entirety of it was from uh, Africa and Asia. I think it was like eight, eight, eight rivers yeah. in Asia that contributed to almost all of it. And then two rivers in Africa. And a lot of it is discarded fishing gear. It's not even trash that's thrown in, in the water. But, but similar to with emissions, and emissions and plastics are the same thing. We get virtue signaling Western politicians that force Canadians in our context to pay for problems that if they are problems are being caused by the Chinas and the Indias of the world. And it's the same as emissions. You know, Canada is what, 2% of global emissions. If you think emissions are the bad five. guy, it's uh, China. Five. Yeah, there we go. So, uh, but, but we're the ones that have to deal with the carbon tax while China is opening new coal plants. And the, the carbon tax is damaging our economy so badly. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many of our business members are leaving the country or they're maybe leaving a little bit of a facility here, but they're going south of the border, for example. I, I know it's anecdotal, but that's, overseas. That, 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 you, you swear by that, that companies in Canada are reducing their footprint or leaving altogether because of it. Totally, totally. And it's been going on for a number of years. So, you know, the, the notion this is badly harming the Canadian economy, imports are, and the, the, the farce of it is imports are coming in from the abusers, the Chinas, the, you know, the, the Thailands, the Malaysia, Indonesia, mm -hmm. these are all the countries that are the main causes, as you mentioned, of, of the plastic waste in the ocean. And, and they're doing absolutely nothing, but our businesses are having to leave because they're no longer competitive. And it's not just the carbon tax. That's one big factor because the other countries don't have one. But it's also, you know, we have we have pretty good environmental rules in Canada and we have had for a very long time. Liberals can't take credit for that. But these other countries don't. They abuse the environment like crazy. So our businesses who are following all the rules, paying gobs of taxes, following stringent environmental procedures and so on, they have to leave because they can't they won't be able to do business anymore. What a stupid policy. Well, and one of the challenges, too, is that on one hand, and look, I, I'm a big free trade fan, and I, I believe that free trade has come with some costs. Globalization has come with some costs. But but generally speaking, we have a, a government that is very pro-globalization, a government that says we need to be connected with the world, but doesn't want to compete against other countries, because that's the reality. Businesses can, uh, are very mobile now, more so in 2023 than ever before. They can do exactly what you just described. They can pick up stakes and go elsewhere, which means we need to compete on regulations 
and on taxes with all of these other countries. And it's it's so ridiculous that the government has failed to realize that or realize it, but is putting that virtue signaling above the national economic interests of Canada and its corporations. I've concluded, Andrew, they just don't care mm. because they're so focused on their ideological, you know, narrow ideological cause, which is the climate. Well, yeah, um, Stephen Gilbo is, they, is they a, don't an really avowed seem idea. To care. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it very ideological. Although, although it's quite hilarious when they saw that it was costing them gobs of votes in a liberal, rich vote area of the country, Atlantic Canada, they they suddenly all their principles went out the window, <laughs> and they gave them a break on heating oil. So let's face it, the the, the hypocrisy is overwhelming, uh, but it's doing real damage. And no, I don't think they even understand or care how many businesses and jobs and whatnot are being driven out of the country. We've seen by, by a number of recent studies, we've seen that our GDP per capita, which is, which is a source of, which is a very good indicator of standard of living, has been dropping precipitously. We've always been lower than the US, but now we're over 30% lower than the US. And it continues to decline. That, that kind of indicator is not good for Canadians. And, and if we want to enjoy the kind of lifestyle we, you know, we've gotten accustomed to, uh, something's got to change fast. And, and if business can't compete in Canada and we got government growing like crazy, and that's not a, a, something that adds to our productivity at all, quite the contrary, it's a drag on productivity, then we got a lot of problems to deal with. I mentioned earlier that even with the federal court decision last week striking down the plastics ban, we have a federal government that's going to appeal it. We have a federal government that is probably going to try to put some modified version in place. And then we go back to square one and we have to restart the court process. So I'm not convinced it's a win and I I don't want to take that away from it, but I'm not convinced it, it puts businesses that are concerned about this or people that are concerned about this in the clear. So there still is this precariousness. And I wanted to ask about that because, you know, it's one thing for a, a company or a corporation to say, uh, we're leaving Canada because X, Y, Z, whatever those things are. It's another thing for a, con- a company to say, you know, we just have no idea what the future is going to hold and it's safer to go elsewhere. And I, I, I think that must be happening as well. Oh, very much so. Uh, you, you can see how bad investment, uh, non-residential investment, because we know our housing market's out of control price-wise, but non-residential investment, which is a source, again, of, of wealth that promotes our, our, our standard of living, uh, that's been declining for years under the Trudeau government. And a lot of it is uncertainty. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainties in the world of business, no mm-hmm. matter what. We don't need the government to add more and more and more, and yet that's what they've done. And the Supreme Court, as you may recall, just about a month ago, struck down the Bill C-69, the so-called No More Pipelines Bill, and that had introduced all kinds of uncertainty Mm -hmm. for large projects in Canada. Yeah, and and that was again one where you've had a couple of major projects that have just said, you know, it it's not worth it, and and then uh, it was particularly bad when you had Trudeau on this side of the border and Biden on the other side of the border, and you know the long, uh, long, long anticipated Keystone project just became dead on arrival. So, uh, you know, obviously uh, you've had uh, the opportunity to speak to a number of political leaders. I know Premier Danielle Smith in Alberta and uh, J- Pierre Polyev, the the conservative leader. I mean, are you optimistic that? That if, I mean, in, in Alberta's case, where she's in government or at the, the national level where Polyev wants to form government, that they can turn this around or are the problems too great right now for a, a government to really solve in a four-year term? 
Well, they're going to be hamstrung by our debt for sure. Not so much Alberta. Alberta, the energy mm -hmm. industry, you know, the fossil fuel industry has been doing quite well, and that's really helped their their bottom line, as well as Canada's. I found it so ironic, uh, laughably ironic, that the Liberals were celebrating that they had greater revenues than they had forecast. It's all because of the oil and gas industry, which <laughs> they hate. So, I mean, talk about hypocrisy. But, I, I mean, of course, things can be turned around. And, and it, we, we showed it back in the 90s, and that was a Liberal government. That the largest cuts in government, and the left loves to say, "Oh, the conservatives will cut, cut, cut." It was liberals that did it, and they did it because we were we had they had to do it. Whoever was in government at the time would have had to do it because we were up against it financially, big time. But um, that's going to happen again, I'm afraid, because our debt is so high. So yes, things can be reversed, but not quickly. It's going to take time, and it's going to hurt. All right, Catherine Swift, always good to talk to you, President of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Uh, this is the Andrew Lawton Show. Now, I, I'm just getting some kind of flashes on my screen that uh, there's been uh, some incident in Niagara. I want to get the details. I mean, it is a live show, so uh, we don't normally do breaking news, but I, I just want to make sure I know what's going on be before I share anything on, on that. But uh, I do want to talk about some of the anti-Semitic incidents that we've been seeing across this country. I shared yesterday a clip of what looked like a young boy making a, a call for violence against against Jews and Israelis leading a crowd in a chant of intifada, revolution, resistance from the river to the sea, all of these catchphrases. And the uh, thing about it is that these ideas uh, will get cheered on. They're not controversial now in Canada. Anti-Semitism, anti Jew hatred, these are uh, all too common things. And I, I don't think this has just been created in the last few days. I think in the last few uh, weeks, rather, I think it's been awakened. I think people have uh, become a very un... They, they felt like they do not need to hide or conceal these views and values, which is even more concerning about it. Now, I don't know what's happening here. This uh, incident uh, is apparently at the U.S.-Canada Rainbow Bridge crossing in Niagara Falls, a vehicle explosion that uh, the FBI are investigating. The, the bridge is closed. We'll uh, try to keep an eye on uh, details there. And again, I, I never like uh, saying what uh, something is in the first you know, 24 hours because it almost always uh, becomes something else. But uh, we are keeping an eye on that. Uh, but one of the things when you look at it, I mean, certainly we have university and college campuses, which are hotbeds of, of anti-Semitism and Jew hatred. And it's a lot of these, you know, white decolonial, post-colonial study lefties that try to take their very distorted worldview and put it on to these uh, situations in the world. But you also have to look at immigration. And I was glad that Barbara Kay, who's a tremendous columnist for the National Post, uh, put this in context so well in a, a piece she wrote this week, how Quebec turned into a hotbed of anti-Semitism. Barbara Kay joins me now. It's always good to talk to you, Barbara. I know this has been a difficult uh, month and a half for, for you as a Jewish woman, and I know for, for you as someone who I think has warned about these things for so long when nobody was paying attention. Yes, thanks, Andrew. Uh, it has been a difficult time, and it, it does make it more difficult, the frustration of uh, having, for the last 20 years, been very aware of what's been happening in Europe, uh, and, you know, a sort of a foretaste of uh, what we could have figured was going to happen here as our immigration patterns uh, were echoing those of Europe. So, uh, yes, uh, frustrating, but 
uh, at least it's better we're talking about them now than never. And and now's a unfortunately a very good time to be talking about immigration patterns. Sure. And you look at for in, a, in a Quebec context, 1970 to 2005, so a, a 35 year period here. What what happened there, and and how has it led, uh, in your view, to what we're seeing now? Well, Quebec nationalism was very hot in 1970. I'm sure you remember. I mean, maybe not. <laughs> I, I read about it. I, I don't remember, but uh, I know about it. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, it was, uh, you know, nationalist sentiment was running very high and particularly, and as always, when nationalism is high, uh, fears about the French language declining are high. So uh, the government, uh, quite understandably, decided that they did need immigration, but why not? why not choose immigrants that are already fluent in French rather than bringing in non-French speaking and spending years, you know, bringing them up to speed. Uh, I get that. I understand it. So the government started looking, kind of throwing open their doors um, and making it very easy for immigrants who were, who were French speaking to come here. And that made it very logical to look for a look at uh, former French colonies. Uh, so a lot of people came from you know, Vietnam and, and Haiti, uh, those immigrants didn't have a problem with Jews. Uh, but the French colonies that were the source of a lot of immigration from North Africa and the Middle East did and do. Uh, so we had a lot of immigration from Lebanon, uh, Algeria, Morocco, uh, Jewish immigrants also from Morocco, especially um, Tunisia. And they brought with them uh, attitudes. Uh, so it, it, some of them really, uh, you know, look, most of these immigrants, it has to be said again and again, and I say it because I mean it. Most of these immigrants do not present a problem. Most of them just want a good life. They're peaceful. They're apolitical. But if even 1% of many, 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 many thousands of people uh, are activists and do harbor uh, certain hatreds and want to see those hatreds expressed in action, that it, that's not good because it doesn't take very many to make trouble. Uh, so, you know, we have seen several really bad actors in Quebec and uh, many people of my age certainly remember, or not even my age, uh, Ahmed Rassam, the millennial bomber who uh, made, he set up in Montreal. Montreal is an ideal place if you're into that business because it's very close to the U.S., it has a good international airport, um, and it's uh, you can melt into the crowd very easily. Uh, so I once asked a former CSIS director, uh, "We haven't had we haven't had incidents of terrorism in Montreal." He said, "No. Why? Why would they? It's an ideal place to operate from. So mm. what you've got are a lot of a lot of uh, Islamist activists in Montreal uh, directing funding." for other groups, uh, planning, helping to plan operations elsewhere, um, and radicalizing youth uh, very successfully in their mosques and uh, via internet forums. Uh, so as a result, we've seen a certain amount of, and, and, and certainly right now, there are demonstrations every single week, and some of them uh, have been, you know, we've had uh, bullet holes in Jewish schools, uh, we had um, uh, Jewish-owned businesses vandalized. Uh, we've had uh, a hit list of, well, I don't know if it's a hit list, but a list of Jewish-owned enterprises circulating. Um, one restaurant in my vicinity, which has a very big Jewish clientele, has had uh, a demonstration every single week right outside its windows, 
Uh, unfortunately, the police would not even put a perimeter and um, very hostile. Uh, he's lost a lot of, you know, a lot of money because uh, when they assemble like that, the, the the guests can't get out of their their underground garage. They can't exit into the street. So they're causing a lot of trouble. And I do feel that um, it it has that feeling of something much worse. You know, when you put bullet holes in a door, you're really saying to the people whose kids go to that school, this time, you know, we shot into the door at night when nobody was there. Next time, well, you know, maybe there will be somebody there. I, I, I think uh, Montreal Jews are extremely fearful. Uh, we have no uh, quarrel at all with uh, Monsieur Legault. Premier Legault has made many, um, several uh, statements that are absolutely, you know, perfect. Uh, says he's, you know, won't be tolerated. And I do, I believe he feels that way. Uh, Monsieur Legault is a big supporter of Israel. Uh, they have, um, uh, Quebec was about to open a, an office in Israel, you know, a, a, a Quebec Israel Bureau uh, that unfortunately will have to be postponed until after the war. But so, you know, on on, a, on, a, on an official level, everything's very cool. Uh, in terms of relationships between the Jewish community, which is 90,000 people, you know, next to Toronto, <clears throat> the biggest. Um, is, but we're fearful. We're fearful. I, I want to go back. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, you and I both know Mark Stein, and one of the things that he has done very well, uh, going back to America alone in 2006, what was explain that a lot of this is just about numbers. And and you said that as well. I mean, if you bring in thousands and thousands of people, 1% is, you know, a small number if you look at the stats, but in raw numbers, that's enough to cause serious problems. I mean, we've seen significant terror attacks that have involved one person. I, that, like, you do not need a lot of people to cause a lot of harm in, in a country. And when we look at anti-Semitism, I think the best case scenario is that if someone has, you know, some anti-Semitic beliefs and they emigrate to, to Canada, that the country itself has sufficiently said, these are not tolerant here, that you shut up about it. And it just becomes this private bigotry that you hold that, that doesn't do anything. And, and the problem is we're seeing in the last six weeks, a lot of people uh, who do not feel that need. They do not feel the need to hide it. They've now uh, been celebrated and, and cheered on. I mean, people at these rallies, like that child I, I showed a clip from yesterday that can call for intifada, call for violence against Jews, and, and they're getting cheered on by thousands of people. You saw in the UK, 100,000 uh, people take to the streets a couple of weeks ago. Of those, is it 1% that supports uh, violence against Jews, 10%? Like Either way, you're, you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of people. And, and as you well know, when you're talking about immigration, the time to deal with it is before you open the doors. Afterwards, especially if, if people have gone through the process and become citizens, you really don't have any response to this as a society or as a country, do you? Well, no, and I, 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 I don't personally understand how you can... I mean, I guess you have to have a very sincere belief that people, when they cross your borders, they're going to leave all their prejudices behind, no matter what they are, they're just going to, you know, uh, and you think that multiculturalism is just a question of, you know, people getting along and diversity, all these superficial words. Well, and these people say it's offensive to insist that there is or should be something that we would call a Canadian value, that, that that's even a, a part of, or should be a part of that process. 
Well, I should think that one of our values that in any democratic country would be that people from various backgrounds and religions and, you know, should be able to get along with each mm -hmm. other without one group fearing that because, you know, that they are have been collectively tarred uh, as inferior or worthy of extermination. I mean, one would think that would be a basic value for any democratic country. So uh, if you know that you're importing people who have grown up with, I, I've had countless Middle Easterners tell me who they themselves have sort of managed to divest themselves of these old prejudices. Mm -hmm. But they have told me, you just have no idea how common anti-Semitic, it's, it's like a given. It's just a given. I know that in Egypt, for instance, which has had a cold peace with Israel since 1979, um, you'll still find on the street people selling the protocols of the elders of Zion. It's a very popular, you know, and this is, this is, uh, these myths and horrible blood libels are considered common knowledge in amongst, a, you know, in, in parts of the Middle East, that's how it is, um, and 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 you should and, and it's up to the government to know that mm -hmm. if they're importing people from one part of the world, investigate what what are these people's cultural values. I know we're not supposed to say that, but you know what? Now that people are running around the streets saying Jews are horrible, gas them or whatever, I think I can say, and you can say, or whoever wants to can say, you know. Um, not all cultures are equal and not all cultures can be counted on to produce people who have respect uh, for the beliefs or for other people, you know, as individuals and not according to uh, uh, biases that they've inherited from their culture. So, you know, Angela Merkel admitted finally after she, you know, brought in a million uh, North African migrants, that it just wasn't working out so well in terms of anti-Semitism in Germany, which was exploding amongst that population. Or well, and, and we of, also saw know, sexual crimes. violence just absolutely uh, went up, spike up, in that up. time. Yeah. So when you say um, here, we've seen anti-Semitism rising like crazy. Well, come on, let's get epidemiological about it. What is the source of this rise and this sudden rise in anti-Semitism? Is it, you know, where is the hatred coming from? Uh, where Where is the actual, the stuff that is criminal, where is that coming from? Um, and, and let's talk about it. I think we have to be very open. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to start uh, dealing with it in, in an educational way. It's no good to just say, yeah, we're going to have Holocaust education uh, for everybody. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work, by the way. You know, a lot of the, the Holocaust education is um, obligatory throughout Europe, especially in Germany. They, kids, every German, every kid in Germany gets a lesson, a vivid lesson. They go to, they're taken to the camps. So they know their Holocaust education. It has not stopped anti-Semitism. Uh, well, I mean, we so have that's the, not the answer. And we have the federal the liberal... Is, but, I know one answer is to start looking at who we're bringing in from where and um, what kind of biases they have about uh, about Jews, because mm -hmm. that's the primary vector, um, you know, for trouble uh, from, you know, uh, especially amongst Islamists. I mean, it's 
Islamists tell us. <laughs> we mm. don't have to guess. They're very open about it. They hate Jews. And they say so. Yeah. Uh, so well, we, we have the federal government seeking... Why are we seeking... ignoring that? Why the federal... are we pretending that Islamophobia is just as big a problem as anti-Semitism? It just isn't. It isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't like Islamism. That's not a phobia. They don't like it because it's horrible. Um, but we should be able to yeah. talk about this. Well, the federal government this week uh, redoubling its commitment to regulating online hate as though the internet is just, you know, the source of anti-Semitism without talking about this, this immigration side. It was a, a great column uh, you wrote, Barbara Kay. Thank you very much for coming on. I, I feel like you might not be able to hear me right now, but uh, nevertheless, we are at the end of the interview anyway. So I appreciate your time, uh, Barbara Kay, columnist with the National Post. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we are uh, just keeping uh, tabs here out of the, the corner of my eye on what's happened at the Rainbow Bridge. The last update I got is that there was a vehicle explosion uh, that entered into the United States from Canada and then exploded on the American side of the bridge. So we have uh, American media outlets. Uh, I understand there's a, a video clip of some kind. I, I haven't seen this clip, but Sean said we had a video. So uh, let's put this up. Yo, call Steve, tell him to come back. That uh, I, I don't know what we saw in that video, certainly a, a bit of the aftermath on uh, the explosion. That was from Colin Rugg on Twitter. Uh, now, Colin Rugg has said that uh, earlier today, CBS News uh, reporter Catherine Herridge warned of an increasing terrorist threat to New York State tied to the Israel-Hamas conflict. Now, uh, again, I, I've, I've not been able to verify any of this directly, but now we have uh, this report uh, that I saw quoted in that tweet, an increase in civilian casualties raises the likelihood that violent extremist threat actors will seek to conduct attacks. I've been briefed on the incident at the Rainbow Bridge in Niagara Falls, and we're closely monitoring it with state agencies on site and ready to assist. That's a statement from the governor of the state of New York. I have crossed that bridge uh, many times. Uh, we also have this uh, image here, which seems to show a, a bit of uh, the aftermath of this smoke. I don't know about injuries or, or fatalities yet. We have our reporters on top of this. Uh, so please do uh, stay connected and tuned into TNC.news this afternoon. Uh, obviously, the, these sorts of things, uh, you, you never want to commit to a path until you know what's happened. That's generally speaking where people in the media get into trouble. But it certainly is consistent with other terrorist uh, incidents we've seen in the past, people using vehicles, although this one at a, an, an international border crossing, uh, certainly unique in the Canadian context. So uh, TNC.news will have that. I will uh, talk to you. Uh, we have a special edition of the program tomorrow, a sit down with a Magna executive, and I'll say a titan of industry in Canada, Frank Stronick, about his vision for Canada and an economic charter of rights, he says Canadians need and deserve. We have a, a full sit down tomorrow on The Andrew Lawton Show. Uh, that's it for us today. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.